Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series, The Unseen Hand of God, with a message entitled, God Begins to Build a Holy Nation. So turning your Bibles to Genesis chapter 46, verses 1 to 25, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. The Bible is not a selection of stories about the people of faith. The Bible is one story. It's the story of the great and awesome God who has decided to redeem and save a chosen people. The world of the sons and daughters of Adam were engaged in a grand treason to overthrow the Creator's right to rule over his creation. In response, the Creator promised to crush the head of the evil one. He will eventually end the rule of evil through the chosen Savior whom he will bring into the world. This would showcase God's glory and secure a chosen people for himself, a holy nation chosen from every race, people, tribe, and tongue. That is the one story of the whole Bible. Everything but everything is leading us to that one point. Indeed, this is the whole story of all of human history. The only thing left to understand is how God would accomplish his grand purpose, and that's the Bible's story. In the fullness of time, now over 4,000 years ago, God chose a man named Abram. God would later change his name to Abraham, the father of nations. And here was God's plan. First, he would favor Abraham to such a degree that anyone who blessed him would be blessed, and anyone who cursed him would be cursed. And then he promised to make Abraham into a great nation. He promised he would settle that great nation into a land of their own. And he promised that the blessing that would come to the world, the Messiah, would come through Abraham's nation. In short, that was God's plan to secure a chosen people for himself from every tribe on earth. But, and there's a very big but here, as we'll see. The fledgling family of Abraham, that is, Abraham's grandson Jacob, a man who also had his name changed by God to Israel. This man and his family, well, they seem to have come to nothing. They're a dysfunctional family who are slowly being absorbed into the Canaanite culture, and soon it seems they will be no more. From a merely human point of view, the grand narrative of God's plan to redeem a people unto himself seems to have fallen off the rails and will soon come to nothing. But here's the central component to the story of God's redemption. The promise of God has never depended on human effort. It always depended on God. The story of God's blessing of Abraham and his offspring would never be the story of the superior morality of that group of people. You see, it turns out that Abraham's offspring are just as sinful as everyone else. God's story of salvation would not highlight human virtue. The Bible's one story is not about the greatness of humankind. Rather, it's the story of the greatness of God. Ultimately, this is God's story. He wrote it, he designed it, and he, not the chosen people, but God himself is the hero of the story. God's story of salvation would highlight God's mercy and his unbreakable promises or the covenant that he had made with Abraham. This is God's story of grace. It's not the story of human worthiness. And so through a series of events that would make up the life of Joseph, we find that God has been at work in taking Jacob's broken family out of Canaan and now planting them in Egypt. Unlike the Canaanites, the Egyptians were not looking to absorb the family of Israel. Rather, the Egyptians found them detestable. 
And yet the family of Israel would be protected politically so that they could grow and become a nation. And during this time, they could also learn to reacquaint themselves with a promise given to Abraham and their place in God's grand plan for the earth. And so through the series of events that have occurred, the grand plan of taking a family and building them into a coherent nation, that plan was now underfoot. With that, we come to Genesis 46, verse 1. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Now, I know that most of us don't have a sense of the geography here, so let me explain it. It would seem that Jacob and his family have remained settled in Hebron. Hebron, if you think in today's terms, is 32 kilometers south of Jerusalem. It is also exactly west of about the middle of the Dead Sea. So if you can imagine that, you'll have to think of a map of Israel with Hebron slightly south of Jerusalem, but still very much at the center of modern-day Israel. Okay, where's Beersheba? Well, let's start by giving you a little hint. There are a number of places in the Old Testament where there's a phrase that describes all of Israel, and it says, from Dan to Beersheba, that is, from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south. So think of it this way. Jacob's 11 sons have just come back from Egypt, and with them were all the moving wagons straight from Pharaoh's palace. The brothers tell their father, Joseph's alive, and he's lord over all of Egypt, and he says, come to Egypt. It takes Jacob a little bit of time, but he finally grasps it. I'm going to see Joseph before I die. They pack everything they own into Egyptian wagons and they begin to journey south from Hebron where they live. Everyone is moving to Egypt to escape the devastating famine in the land. And then as the entourage continues to move south, they come to the edge of Canaan, the border of the land, to Beersheba. And Jacob, or Israel, knows that this is the southernmost part of the promised land. This is the southernmost part of the land that God gave to Abraham and his descendants. He's about to leave the land of promise. And so for Israel, this is a very challenging moment. He has to stop, and you have to imagine that he calls the entire entourage to go no further. Set up tents here, and we're going to stay here for some time. We're going to build an altar. Let's prepare animals for sacrifice to God and let's worship and let's seek the God of Isaac. Why? Well, in order to understand that, we need to go back to Genesis 26 verses 1 to 2. And so let's read that passage. It says, Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. So let's retrace the history of Abraham. Abraham had hardly arrived in Canaan when there had been a famine in the land and he had gone down to Egypt in order to escape and to find food. And the experience had been an utter catastrophe for a number of reasons. The first being that that God had not called him to go there. His decision to go to Egypt had been a knee-jerk reaction to the famine rather than a response in faith to God. And when a second famine occurred during his son Isaac's life, and remember, Isaac is the son of Abraham, God had specifically intervened and commanded Isaac not to go down to Egypt, and then he didn't. And Jacob, who's the next generation, has not forgotten that history. Even though he knows that his son Joseph is alive, and even though his heart aches to see him, and even though safety and riches await for him in Egypt, he knows enough to seek the face of God. Is he wrong to leave the promised land of Canaan? Just because everything looks so good, is this turn of events from God or is it not? 
And so at the southernmost boundary of the land, at the place where he was about to leave Canaan, and after that soon enter into Egypt, he calls the entire entourage to stop. They will worship here, they will sacrifice to God, and they will await God's favor. If Israel has learned anything in his life, it is simply this. When you act without the favor of God, nothing good is going to come of it. He seems, in my view, quite ready to go back home at this point and wait upon God for deliverance in Hebron. And then as the old man worships and waits on God, the great God of Abraham and Isaac appears to him. So we continue to read, and we're now reading Genesis 46, verses 2 and 4. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand will close your eyes. There it is. This trip to Egypt, this was arranged by God's unseen hand. You've not known it until now, but I have chosen to make you a great nation in the land of Egypt. What strikes me as significant here is that God chose to speak to Jacob in a dream in the night. It was a time of darkness. We know that God did this very same thing to Abraham, his grandfather. It's back in Genesis 15 when he took him outside and showed him the the stars of the sky, and there he had promised him, this is how your offspring will be. They will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Now then, with the promise that came to Abraham comes the promise that is now made to Jacob or to Israel. I will begin this work. This promise that I made to your grandfather will now be completed by forging you into a nation in the land of Egypt. Your journey to Egypt has been arranged by me. I am going with you there, for this has always been my plan. And then another promise. I will bring you up from there again. You see, the destiny of Israel is never to remain in Egypt. Their destiny is in the land of Canaan, which which is the promised land. But that promise can't come to fruition until this phase is accomplished. Have no fear, Jacob, for the Lord your God has planned all of this. Today might be the day for you to consider becoming a Back to the Bible Canada monthly partner. You know, hundreds of people from coast to coast to coast have chosen to support the Bible teaching ministries of Back to the Bible Canada in this way. They've become a part of the foundation of this ministry. You know, your monthly gift, whether it's $10, $50, $100, or $500, sustains this Bible teaching ministry, including the daily program you're listening to right now. So if you've been blessed and challenged by this ministry, and want to invest in the ongoing Bible teaching programs of Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld? well, give us a call today or sign up online. Choose to become a monthly partner. Call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Back to the Bible monthly partners, together we teach the Bible. Before the vision of Beersheba is over, Jacob is given the promise that he will die in Egypt. But do not fear, for it is his son Joseph that will close his eyes. That is to say, Jacob now believes that when his time to die comes, Joseph, his dearly beloved son, will attend to him until the time he is taken in death. 
and furthermore he will die in peace in the way that Abraham did. And so the matter was settled in Beersheba. Jacob's family, or the family of Israel, they were not going to Egypt because the land of Canaan was ravaged by famine. Israel was going to Egypt because the unseen hand of God had determined that Joseph would be sold as a slave in Egypt, that he would rise to become the vizier of the land, and that he would oversee food distribution in the famine. And all these grand events had been arranged by God so that the promise of God that a Savior would come into the world through the chosen people would come to pass. And that brings us back to the point, doesn't it? The promise doesn't depend on human effort. It depends on the plan of God. And furthermore, even though looking at the grand events from a human perspective would lead us to believe that there is no plan at all, but now we can look back and clearly see that there has always been a master plan far greater than, than we could have imagined. So we continue to read Genesis 46, verses 5 and 7. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had set to carry them. And they also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. You know, the beginning of verse 5 gives the impression of a very quick and decisive action. No longer is Jacob in any doubt at all about the plans of God. And once he's determined that this is of God, he has no hesitation, none whatsoever. He doesn't look back at Canaan. He simply puts his head forward and he begins to move. God has spoken and the old man will obey. This has always been the case for God's people. You know, we might think of the Apostle Paul on his way to Jerusalem, where Acts 20, verse 22 records him saying, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. That is, what happens when I get there will probably involve suffering, but I know that I go according to the will of God. I, says Paul, am constrained, or I'm compelled by the Holy Spirit to go. Or we might think of Jesus on his way to Jerusalem, knowing that his crucifixion awaited him, and yet knowing that this is the purpose of God for him. This is why he had come into the world. See, once the will of God becomes evident to the people of God, they no longer worry about all the possible things that might happen. It's enough to know that God has called this to be. And our text in Genesis says that Jacob's sons carried him. Now, I don't really take that to mean that they physically put him on their shoulders and carried him in some fashion. Rather, you know, from the reading of the text, Jacob's sons made sure that their father had an appropriate place to ride in the wagons that the Egyptians had sent. But furthermore, our text also tells us that they were carrying all of their possessions. Clearly, this is not a vacation or a short-term stay. If you'd been living in Canaan, you would have noticed that there was nothing left in the land that belonged to the family of Israel. All the children are properly secured, but also so are all their worldly possessions, along with their livestock. See, we've learned that the shepherds were detestable to the Egyptians, but clearly Jacob doesn't care. They're going to Egypt not to integrate into Egyptian culture. They're going to Egypt to build a nation, the nation of the holy people of God. And so from that perspective, something wonderful was happening to Abraham's offspring. No doubt their father had told the entire family of the vision that God had shown him. And now, for the first time, 
The family understood that this move was a sacred mission. It was their sacred calling. They were so much more than refugees. They were the seed of Abraham. They were called by God to bring his plan of salvation into the world. They were going to Egypt to fulfill God's purposes for this earth. So the next section in Genesis, that is from chapter 46, verse 8, all the way through to verse you know, 27, that gives us a list of all the people who entered into Egypt. And for most of us, when we read a list like that, you know, our eyes tend to glaze over because to the most part, they're just names, names that are hard to pronounce and names that will never come up again in the pages of Scripture. You know, and so the modern Bible reader, it's always tempting to simply pass over this until we come to verse 28, where it comes interesting again. But please remember that the Bible is an ancient book. And please also remember that from that time onward, every single Israelite would want to be reminded of the people who fulfilled their sacred calling. They want to find the name of their own ancestor, and they tell themselves that this is the person who was courageous enough to follow the plan of God. And for our benefit, and because of the weakness of the modern reader, I'm going to pass over the list very quickly, but please notice that the genealogy is divided into five parts. The first part, well, that's simply the introduction, and it's found in verse 8. Now, these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons. And that's important because this is the nation in miniature. This is the embryo before the nation came into being. For after this, Israel would always be spoken of as a nation that consisted of 12 tribes, and each tribe had been fathered by one of the sons of Jacob. Now, the second part of the genealogy, and that's found in the latter part of verse 8 all the way through to verse 15, we have the family that came from Leah. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanak, Palu, Hetzron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jakin, Zohar, and Shaul, the sons of a Canaanite woman. Oh yeah, the signs that the family were breaking down, well, that was right there. They were intermarrying with the Canaanites. Further reading, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Yov, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, Jalil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob and Padan Aram, together with his daughter Dinah, Altogether, his sons and his daughters numbered 33. You'll notice that Dinah is mentioned here. She's the only daughter, and we have to assume here that after the fiasco of her being raped and the response to that, that she probably never married. But she is included among the members of Israel. And then the third section from verses 16 to 18, which are the sons of Jacob through his concubine Zilpah, who you will remember was given to Jacob as a maid to Leah. So it says the sons of Gad, Ziphion, Hagi, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Eridai, and Ereli. The sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Bariah, and Sariah, their sister. And the sons of Bariah, Heber, and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter. And these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. So you're going to notice that we're keeping a running commentary of how many people we have. We have had first 33 and now 16, and that brings the number up to 49. Then the fourth section, which is verses 19 to 22, these are the sons of Jacob through his favorite wife, Rachel. 
It says, the sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt was born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Beker, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupim, Hupim, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. And then finally, we have the last section. These are the sons of Jacob through Bilhah, who was Rachel's maidservant, verses 23 to 25. The sons of Dan, Hushim. The sons of Naphtali, Jazil, Guni, Jazer, and Shilem. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. And that's the foundation of the nation that gave the world a Messiah. As we will see, the full number is reckoned at 70, which is probably not a surprise to anyone. That's because the number seven has been God's number of completion and perfection. It's God's perfect ordering of all things. And as we approach the end of Genesis, the picture is now forming. The great God of creation is accomplishing all of his purposes in the creation. This creation will reflect the glory of God. God will work to place a cross at the center of the creation, showcasing both his mercy and his righteousness, his utter and beautiful glory. Everything is on track. It may have looked messy and out of control, but but now finally we see that it was never messy at all. The unseen hand of the creator was arranging all things just as he promised. Read through this section and marvel. My prayer, is that will inspire you in your faith today. John, thanks so much for your message today. You know, it really reminds me that this is a grand story and that Abraham and Jacob and so many others are part of it. Some people have very small parts to play, but the confidence comes in knowing we're part of the story too. Boy, isn't that a great uh, thought? Um, You know, there is a a listing of all of the names that are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I don't know whether or not when we come to glory that every single name will be read out, um, but I do suspect, Ben, that they will be. And to find one's own name in there and to find that it was always God's design to secure a people for himself and that we are among that people, I think is going to fill us with this deep sense of wonder Uh, that God has indeed kept his word. Every single word of the Lord was kept, not one failed. It's wonderful to remember. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Unseen Hand of God, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Dr. John's newest Bible teaching series, The Adventure of Prayer, is available to you this month on CD as our free ministry gift. Have you struggled with prayer? You know it's important, but have always felt your prayer life wasn't what it ought to be. Well, Dr. John wants to encourage and equip you. Prayer ought to be a joy, ought to be an adventure, ought to be powerful, and this five-message series just may change your prayer life. So call us today. Or if you'd rather listen online via podcast or mobile app, the series is available on all of these mediums so that the maximum number of people have free access to quality, trustworthy Bible teaching. To request your copy on CD or if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, 
Call us right now at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or visit us online at backtothebible.ca.